So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Chris Bale, who's a professor of sociology and public policy at Duke, where he directs the Polarization Lab. And we're going to be talking about his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, which I just I just finished reading and love. So anyway, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you about polarization. What do we, we, we hear this term a lot. I read the New York Times with the kids in class, and this term comes up like every day when we're talking about American politics. What does polarization mean, and why is it a problem? Well, I think we don't need to look much further than the COVID pandemic to see how, you know, how negative uh, polarization can be, right? I mean, on the one hand, you have, you know, one segment of the country that's treating the pandemic and with one set of strategies and another set of the another side of the country that's treating it with another set of strategies. And of course, both sides want the other side to use their strategy. And the only thing worse than, you know, the other side not doing what you want to do is when both sides are doing things that make everybody worse off. So for example, you know, if we are trying to save the economy, but also trying to prioritize public health, um, you know, if we do, if half the population is doing one of those things and the other half is doing the other, then we wind up um, with, with no one winning. And, and the, the pandemic is kind of a microcosm of lots of other things that we could talk about from, you know, climate change to rising inflation, We've seen a logjam um, of legislation. Politicians can't seem to, to get much policy done. But more importantly, in our day-to-day lives, we're, we're segregated from each other. We are disconnected from each other. And in the long term, that could have real consequences for our country. So this book is about social media. And I don't have a personal social media account, but I do, I do have one for uh, the podcast. And being like relatively unfamiliar with social media, when I was first posting about our episodes, I would write these long posts about the content and I'd get, you know, I'd get no, no likes. I'm wondering, you know, when the internet first came about and social media, there was this idea that people would become much more educated and we'd be using social media to have, you know, complicated discourse. That's not what happens. What is it about the medium itself, which, which lends itself towards sort of either the images or extreme posts? Yeah, I think we have to first think about who's doing most of the posting. If we look in the, in the realm of politics, what we see is that about 7% of people are posting roughly 76% of content about politics. And that 7% of people, it might not surprise you to know, are somewhat strange. They're very political, and, or I shouldn't say strange, they're unusual, and they have very extreme views. So if we wander off onto you know, the internet and start encountering people who don't share our views, the strong likelihood is that those people will be relatively extreme. And you know, the real danger is that those people can kind of start to seem normal or, or even mainstream. So, you know, if you kind of, if you're a Democrat and you encounter an extreme Republican, you may start to think that all Republicans think that way. And so, you know, social media has these kind of perverse incentives for extremists to, to engage. And it has a lot of disincentives for moderate people to engage. Um, and that's why I call this book breaking the social media prism, because I think social media refracts reality back to us. You know, 
we all use it as if it's a real measure of what's going on in the world, but really we're seeing a heavily distorted view that's driven by extremists. And the important thing is that, you know, once we realize that, we can we can understand that actually we're not as polarized as as many people think we are. Because you write about this a bit that there was this, we were very optimistic maybe you know 10, 15 years ago about this as a tool to educate, but it hasn't worked out that way. So I'm wondering if it's if there's something about the medium. Or if, in fact, we could reform the medium, if there's a way to change it and we could actually use it to have in-depth conversations. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of ideas about how we can reform it. But let's let's stick with what's going on for a few more, for a few more minutes, if we can here. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we have to think about what drives us as human beings. You know, we, we've heard a lot of stories about, you know, social media is addictive. Social media shows us flashy things. You know, Silicon Valley has hacked our brains and, and, you know, we are, you know, stuck in a kind of futile struggle against technology. Um, But really, when we start to look at a lot of those explanations, um, they don't really hold up to research. And what does seem to be going on is something that actually predates social media. And that's something that we all do every day, whether we know it or not. And, you know, we've known this for more than a century human beings, you know, what makes us unique is that we care so much about what other people think about us. So, you know, we do this as young children, but we really do it throughout our lives to varying degrees. We kind of run like experiments with our identities every day. You know, we kind of put on a different identity, you know, one day, um, you know, I, I might present myself as a, you know, a college professor and another day I might present myself more as a father and another time as an uncle or whatever. And as I do these kind of perform these different identities, I look around at other people to see what they think. This is one of our most human instincts. And, you know, I tend to cultivate or gravitate towards those identities that make me feel good about myself, that give me a sense of status. And, you know, we did this, of course, long before social media. But the interesting question is how the medium itself is changing how we construct our identities, I think. So I think it's doing this in two ways. The first way is that we have a lot more flexibility in the types of identities that we can project onto the world. So, you know, I can be fully anonymous and and really become whoever I want. You know, I could say I'm LeBron James, right? And obviously, when you meet me, you'd see I'm nowhere, nowhere near LeBron James. But <laughs> the point is, the point is, I can, right? And so I have this broader range of identities that I can experiment with. And then the second thing is that social media is giving me powerful new tools to try to keep track of what other people are thinking. Um, so I have, you know, like counts, follower counts, and all this kind of stuff that allow me to, um, you know, determine what other people are thinking about me with unprecedented speed. Now, of course, you know, these aren't necessarily good things because the people doing the liking, if they're that small, very active part of the internet, right, that is pretty extreme, then, you know, when you make those kind of rational statements that you're hoping will educate people and you're not getting it likes, it doesn't mean that, you know, people aren't listening or people aren't necessarily liking your content. It might just mean that the people who are most active are these kind of more extreme people. So then the interesting question I think is, why does the 
internet incentivize people to take on these extreme identities? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And I'm also wondering who these people are. I know you studied them in the book and you, you give some examples of who these people are and how they live their real lives and, and, and how those are different than the way they come across online. So maybe you could talk about that as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things we did in our research is we use kind of the tools of data science to track polarization on social media. So that means like collecting large amounts of social media data and looking for patterns in it, and even running some large experiments um, with lots of social media users. And that can get you pretty far. You can discover some interesting things with these new tools. But at the end of the day, we're still dealing with human beings. And to understand how people think and how people react to different you know, experiments you might ask them to be a part of, you really need to meet them and get to know them. And so I'll give you an example. One of the most interesting characters we met in our research is a guy that I'll call Ray to protect his uh, confidentiality. And, you know, Ray is this super polite guy. You know, he is, when you first meet him, he says, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Republican, but I'm, I'm pretty moderate. And I try to get along with everyone. You know, I try to avoid talking about politics and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it goes out of his way to explain that he's not racist, that he grew up with friends of many different races. And so, you mean, he's a pretty pleasant guy. But then when we went to look at Ray's social media data, we discovered that each night he transforms from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. He turns into like a monster on the internet. I mean, he mm. stays up late at night producing memes depicting liberal leaders like Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton in the most unspeakable and really terrible ways. And so, you know, the really interesting question, I think, is like, what would motivate someone to do this? Why would they stay up late at night, you know, carefully photoshopping these things all night? And what we discovered is Ray's offline life is shaping his online life. You know, he lives in a really liberal city. And as a conservative, you know, he feels often marginalized. He, he works in a liberal job, uh, profession or job. And, you know, he's a middle-aged man who we discovered lived with his mother. You know, he was really lacking what, what I think we all crave, which is a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense of status. And unfortunately, the internet was providing with him, providing him with that kind of status, albeit a kind of status that's really bad for the rest of us, right? So each time he makes these posts, he's getting likes, he's getting new followers. And for Ray, that's a really important source of status and, and identity and, and purpose in life, however you know, bad that is for the rest of us. Yes, I want to talk about that because it seems to me that there's, I mean, I imagine that the rays have always existed, but there also used to be a point where, whereas as Robert Putnam tells us, people didn't, you know, bowl alone and they, they played cards together and they went to the Elks Club and that we, we seem to be living in a time where, where it's a lot harder to find the kind of meaning that you're talking about. And I'm wondering, well, I guess, do we go back to bowling together or is that, is that not possible anymore with the way that we live? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think I should probably explain for your audience a little bit about what this bowling business is. Yeah, right? please. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we, uh, you know, this this interesting political scientist at Harvard wrote a book that says the problem with America is we we just don't connect anymore. We lack the kind of connections that we might have had when everybody used to go bowling together 
or when everybody, you know, like old folks used to have these things called Elks clubs, which are kind of like places where people can go and hang out and do say volunteer work together and things like that. And the central argument is that that, that fabric that used to hold us all together, those in-person experiences where we could recognize each other's, you know, shared humanity or, you know, maybe have connections outside of politics, you know, those are fraying and um, they're few and far between. And about 20 years later, another Harvard political scientist um, looked at massive amounts of data on, on where Republicans and Democrats live. And he discovered just last year that, that the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats now live in areas of the country where they will seldom meet each other. And that's because increasingly Republicans and Democrats have started to sort themselves into different parts of the country, you know, urban versus rural, um, to some extent, North versus South. And so those opportunities for us to go bowling together or to, you know, meet each other in these offline settings, which we know are so valuable, are really few and far between. And so you might say, okay, well, most people should be like you. They should get off social media as much as possible. And I think that's fine um, in, in some ways. You know, we, we do need more um, off-person contact. But we live in a world where social media is inevitable. You know, technology is all around us. Many of your listeners grew up in a world where social media has always existed. And many young people are on social media um, for huge parts of the day, probably too much in some cases. But the reality is that's where their life is unfolding. You know, mm -hmm. social connections are made through video games or mm -hmm. um, through other types of shared experiences online. And, you know, the metaverse, of course, is going to make these connections even more important, probably even more important to young people, too. So we have to think about, I think, not, you know, just you know, leaving social media, because by the way, I think most of the people who leave social media are thoughtful people like you, right? And, and when thoughtful people like you leave social media, then the problem is the extremists can, can dominate even more than they already do. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, how do we create a space where, you know, thoughtful people can come together and have productive conversations? And clearly, social media in its current form isn't that, right? It was invented um, in the case of Facebook to help college students, you know, rate each other's physical attractiveness. Why should we, mm -hmm. why should we uh, think that today that same platform can really help us solve problems like coronavirus? It's, it's really kind of crazy to think that, you know, we've never stepped back and thought, well, what should social media really look like? Yeah, and, and you bring a really interesting experiment where you, you say, look, and, I, and we do this at school too. We tell the kids to get out of their, get out of their bubbles. And you ran an experiment where you actually had people exposed to, say, a Democrat was exposed to um, the messages or messaging from the other side. And um, how effective was that in terms of shifting people's mindset? Yeah, so we hoped that when we did this large experiment where we recruited about 1,200 people, uh, Republicans and Democrats on Twitter, who uh, we paid to follow a Twitter bot that unbeknownst to them, would retweet messages from the opposing side for about a month. And we did this in large part because we had hoped that this would make people a little more moderate. You know, a lot of people worry that we're segregated in these kind of echo chambers or filter bubbles, and that the more we segregate ourselves, the less we're able to 
engage with the other side. You know, we, we have, you know, we, we can't recognize that there's two sides to every story, or maybe we're listening to different stories altogether. And the effect is, you know, a lot of people worry that, that, you know, it, it's driving the political divide. So we thought, okay, well, if we take people outside their echo chambers and ask them to kind of pop their filter bubble, you know, maybe they'll become more moderate. And unfortunately, this isn't what happened. Um, nobody became more moderate. And in fact, many people, most people became more extreme in their views when they encountered the other side. So that was, that was bad news. If nothing changes, what do you think America looks like in 10 years if we stay on this track? It's hard to say. Um, you know, there, we are early in the story of social media and, um, you know, we are experiencing probably unprecedented levels of polarization. We can't really know how it compares to, you know, say, you know, after the, the Civil War, which is a long time ago before we really kept good track of these things. But certainly it, it seems really bad. And, and, you know, many of us are really concerned. Um, the thing that gives me hope, though, is that most large technological disruptions in human societies take some time to sort themselves out. So social media is a big deal. You know, it's, it's comparable in many ways, I think, to the invention of radio or the television or maybe even the printing press, you know, which many hundreds of years ago allowed people to read books for the first time, right? Imagine if you lived in a society where you, you mm -hmm. had almost no access to, to knowledge, right? That was the world that, that people lived in. And of course, the simple invention of the, of the printing press you know, has this massive transformation on, on, on the world, it, you know, created new religions, it realigned, you know, how countries think about themselves in many ways. And so, you know, we're really only 20 years into social media, and it might take 30, 40 years before we really start to learn um, how to leverage the good and minimize the bad of social media, because we know there's bad, but we also know there's good. You know, everybody wants to answer this simple question, you know, is social media bad or good? And, and it's, it's really not that simple, right? Um, in other parts of the world outside the U.S., there's a lot of evidence that social media is doing good. There's a lot of evidence it's doing bad in most places, too. So, so how, do we, how do we, you know, maximize the good and minimize the bad? That's the tricky question that I think we'll be working on for the next 10 years. But I do think we'll make some progress. I just want to ask about that. Do you, have you seen... Any studies which look at polarization and, and social media outside of the United States? And, and if so, what are we seeing? Yeah, there's some pretty interesting studies. So first, let me tell you about a study in the U.S. And then I'll tell you what happened when it was reproduced outside the U.S. So about four years ago, a bunch of economists wanted to find out basically, you know, what social media um, does to people, you know, does it, does it make us happy? Does it make us sad? Does it make us polarized? Um, does it make us educated or, or less educated? And to study this, they did a really interesting experiment. They recruited a bunch of people and then they said, okay, we're going to give half of you a hundred dollars if you stop using Facebook for a month. And before they did this, they measured all sorts of stuff, how happy they were, how educated they were, all these kinds of things. And then at the end of the month, um, they, after they had been not using Facebook for a month, um, they resurveyed them. They gave them the same survey. And what they discovered is, is pretty interesting. So one, the people who stopped using Facebook were a little bit happier. They were more content with their lives. Um, they were maybe a little less polarized. 
but they were also less knowledgeable about politics. So, you know, here we're getting into the good and bad again, right? You mm -hmm. can increase, you know, happiness, but it comes at the cost of some knowledge about the world. Okay. So that was done in the United States. And then several years later, um, a really clever young political scientist, she decided, you know, well, let's see if this holds up in another country. And so she did the same thing, paid, paid an experimental group of people to stop using Facebook in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in, uh, you know, southeastern Europe. And, you know, some people in your audience may know that that country for years suffered terrible ethnic conflict and, and, and when war. And interestingly, when she did the study there, first of all, she saw, she saw some of the same things. She saw that people in Bosnia who stopped using Facebook got a little bit happier. But also, and this is the most interesting part, I think, she found that people who stopped using Facebook were also angrier at the other ethnic group. So Facebook, in that case, seemed to have actually improved ethnic, inter-ethnic attitudes. People on one and one ethnic group actually liked the other group more when they stayed on Facebook. And the reason the researchers think this happened is because Bosnia is even more segregated than the U.S. Um, and so really the only place where you can see positive images of the other side is on Facebook. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, we are really early in understanding how social media affects us. And it's really complicated. We know that. But, you know, it's, it's even more complicated than what we're seeing in the U.S. and, and certainly all around the world. We need a lot more research to figure out how to optimize technology to promote social harmony and, and minimize the type of conflict that we also know social media has created. You know, people blame social media for its role in, in ethnic conflict in India, Myanmar and, and other parts of the world, too. So we really have to do more research. That's the first thing, I think. You know, um, in Chapter 9, you, you're talking about a, a new kind of platform and and we're just going to read a little bit. You say, we, we want to ask fundamental questions about the architecture of social media. More specifically, we wanted to explore interventions that could disrupt the feedback loop between identity-seeking status and political polarization that I've described about the book. And you can tell me if this is not, if this is not a real analog, but I was thinking about, as I read this, this George Soros piece that he, write, he writes about financial markets. And he says, basically, you know, he's got this theory of reflexivity. And he says, there's two parts. One part is the theory of fallibility where all of us see the world in a partially distorted way. And we have to, because we just have, we just have our senses and we're always gonna be a little off. Um, the problem is, is that we then act on that distorted vision of the world and that action further distorts reality. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about you know, what he talks about, he talks about the feedback loops in financial markets lead to, you know, bubbles and then crashes and that you have to create a new architecture of the financial system because markets will tend towards disequilibrium. So to create more equilibrium. And I kept thinking about that as I was reading your book. And so I'm really curious about your proposed fixes to create equilibrium again. Yeah, it's a really good way of framing it. Um, you know, earlier when I was saying that when we took people outside their echo chamber, they got more uh, extreme. Um, the reason we think this happened 
is because most social media doesn't contain the type of productive, rational conversation that like, you know, you're trying to do with this podcast, right? Most social media is name calling, especially places like Twitter, where there's just a lot of public fighting between people and, you know, people are taking each other down and, and it's all about winning the argument, right? And so, you know, if you take people outside their echo chamber, what do they see? They actually see more conflict. They don't see, especially because, you know, um, you know, these types of conflicts get boosted by social media companies. You know, we, the, the order in which we see stuff in our news feeds or, or whatever kind of feed you use, if you're on TikTok or whatever, is determined in large part by how much engagement that post is going to get. So, you know, if you say something really crazy, uh, it's going to make a lot of people upset and they're going to reply saying, you know, I, I don't agree with you or make something less common than that. And then, um, you know, that's going to rise up to the top of our feeds and, and we're all going to start seeing that stuff and, and instead of other stuff. And so, you know, when you think about stepping outside your, your echo chamber, this is kind of what happens. You just get, you, you turn up the dial of the, the, the kind of partisan warfare or the political fighting um, that, you know, we've all become used to on social media. And so what I think you really need to do, and maybe there's some synergy with what Soros is saying here, is you want to, you know, find ways that people can put ideas before identities. You know, if I'm a Democrat and I see a Republican trying to convince me of something, you know, before I can even listen to what they're saying, I'm thinking, you know, who is this person? And, you know, they're not on my side. So you have this inherent mistrust of them. And you're thinking like, well, what is my side supposed to think? You know, how am I supposed to win this argument? But now imagine that you encounter someone in an anonymous setting. So, you know, you're just, uh, you're, you're just in a, imagine yourself in a chat with someone, but you don't know who they are. You don't know if they're a Republican or a Democrat or, or whoever. And you just start having a conversation about say gun control, you know, a divisive issue and, and one that affects a lot of young people too. Uh, you know, well, how does that conversation start? Well, imagine, you know, if you're, if you know the other that the person's from the other side, well, you're probably going to start launching into a bunch of arguments about why the other side is wrong. But if you don't, you might start listening a little more. You might start listening to why people think, uh, you know, we need the types of policies and laws that, that we do instead of just rejecting whatever they say right off the bat. And so we had this idea, but, you know, it, it could go the other way too, right? Like, anonymous conversations could mm -hmm. be really toxic, right? I think we've yeah. all had that experience. And I was earlier, I was talking about this guy, Ray, who, you know, he does all this vile stuff on the internet with, with an anonymous account. So yeah, so so what would happen, though, if you really did this? So we actually created our own social media platform to do research. And we once again, got a bunch of Republicans and Democrats to use it. And then we had a bunch of people who didn't use it. And the only thing the platform did was have them have an anonymous chat about either gun control or immigration, two pretty divisive topics. And pretty surprisingly, what we saw is people actually tended to depolarize when they had these anonymous conversations, um, both in terms of what they think the government should do about them, but also what they think of the other side. Um, and even more surprising is that people seem to like it. Um, you know, we asked them a bunch of questions. We didn't give them any incentive or more pay for saying that they like this 
social media platform, we, ha- we asked them to help test. But 89% of people said they liked it a lot. So, you know, maybe that suggests there's an appetite for a new kind of platform. And, you know, maybe some of your listeners are the type of, you know, entrepreneurial, hardworking young people who are better with technology than us old folks who can help design that and scale it up um, and make it marketable. You know, that's the real challenge uh, going forward. Okay. And then the last question that I, I ask all the guests is what in the world right now is the thing that's making you feel most optimistic? Well, you know, I would say one, I mean, let's look at places like Twitter um, are really making new strides to recruit researchers to come in and help solve the problem. I mean, one of the really tricky things is this problem requires everyone. It requires lawyers, it requires software engineers, it requires researchers. And, you know, thus far, a lot of the companies like Facebook or, you know, um, TikTok have been trying to solve these problems on their own. Um, And these are really tough problems to solve. I mean, we lead a lab of 30 people who, you know, been working on these issues for four or five years and and we struggle. Um, So, you know, we all we all need to work together. And there's really exciting moves that, that Twitter is making to start to share more data with with researchers. And, um, you know, if you have particularly ambitious listeners, they can check out um, some online videos that I've made that teach you how to use data science to access and collect Twitter data. You can check out SICSS.io. That's SICSS.io, which is a large program that I run. It's mostly for college students and, and graduate students. So many of your listeners are going to be too young to, to do the actual in-person training that we offer. Um, but you can take our online courses and start to learn some of the tools that data scientists use to try to solve these kinds of problems like polarization. 